very important that we have a grasp on uh, those topics, especially when it comes to the the uh, when it comes to understanding the importance of the Trinity, especially as it relates to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the Trinity. So just understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person, that the Holy Spirit is, uh, because he's a person, he's a, a, has, has uh, elements of relationship with God the Father, God the Son. He has distinct roles that are important. We, we talked a little bit about those roles last week. Uh, we assigned verses to various groups, and you guys talked about those roles. But this week we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, those roles maybe in categories, a few categories to think of that are important for us to think of, and then we'll speak a little bit more uh, in depth about things like how the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is different than the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Not different person, just different in uh, perhaps the way he manifests himself. But I thought it would be helpful to start out with this, a quick uh, definition, or not even a definition, but even a quick description of the Holy Spirit's primary role, which it's not that um, revela- rev- revelatory, it's not that big news, but it just helps us to think about it. So the role of the Holy Spirit primarily is to manifest the presence of God in our world, which all of us would say, yeah, that absolutely makes sense, right? The role of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the presence of God in our world. So interestingly, if you look at the whole of Scripture, you get the Old Testament which by and large, the majority of the interactions with God are referenced of God the Father, right? It seems like God the Father is the dominant person of the triune God that is active in the Old Testament. There are theophanies where we've talked about Jesus, perhaps like a pre-incarnate Christ uh, uh, showing up. There are definitely times when the Holy Spirit shows up, but we definitely see God the Father is the more prominent Then Jesus, obviously the life of Jesus, is very, very prominently the person of the triune God that is manifested at that stage. And then in the new covenant age, the age we're in, the Holy Spirit seems to be the primary primary manifestation of God. So it's just interesting. That's certainly his role right now then to manifest the presence of God in our world. And that is seen in the fact that the Holy Spirit actually indwells believers now where that was not true uh, on the whole in the Old Testament. So it's interesting to note, um, Jesus himself, when he is walking on earth, actually interacts with the Holy Spirit. And we see many times uh, the Holy Spirit doing things in the life of Jesus. So this is just, it's, it's hard to quite fathom because Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. The Holy Spirit and Jesus are one and yet distinct. And so it's kind of hard to fathom these things, but it's interesting to just even note at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit is said to have descended like a dove and rested on Jesus, signifying this is like, in some sense, like his anointing or his like commissioning for ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has not been in active ministry. He's been growing up, working with his dad. But this is the the start of his ministry. And it just is symbolizing and showing us that Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. As odd as that is to think. Jesus had full capacity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He was always fully submitted to the Holy Spirit. We are not always fully submitted to the Holy Spirit, unfortunately. But Jesus was. Jesus is described in Matthew 4, verse 1, as being led by the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit led, in fact, it, it says in some uh, translations, it drove him into the wilderness. And so Jesus was following the lead of the Holy Spirit in that sense. The Holy Spirit was leading, much like the Holy Spirit is called to lead us or is leading us. Jesus is said to have done things in the power of the Spirit. So Luke 4 verse 14 uh, talks about Jesus doing things in the power of the Spirit. So we can turn there for a moment just so that uh, we can kind of see this. Luke 4 14. This is after the uh, temptation of Jesus. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So Jesus was in going around in the power of the Holy Spirit, basically evidencing that Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we also have the um, authority that Jesus had, or the authority, the power that Jesus had to cast out demons is attributed by him to the spirit of God, to, the, to what we would understand as the Holy Spirit. So this is in a confrontation where the Pharisees are talking about Jesus and basically attributing what Jesus is doing to Satan. Satan's like, or Jesus says, that doesn't make sense. If Satan was against Satan casting out demons, it wouldn't make sense. And so he says this, verse 27 of chapter 12. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's indicating it is by the spirit of God that he casts out demons. And so Jesus, even as he's doing ministry, doing miracles, doing casting out demons, is doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is just fascinating uh, for us to think about that even God, the son is interdependent on God, the Holy Spirit for this or is pictured that way. So we're going to talk broadly about some of the, uh, the roles of the Holy Spirit. We may have touched on a few of these last week as we just spoke about, uh, as we did those verse assignments, but one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is simply to create or to give life, or another word would be to regenerate. The Holy Spirit is all about life giving. So Genesis 1 and 1 verse 2, we looked at last week, talked about the Holy Spirit was present at creation, hovering over the face of the waters. Though all members of the, the triune Godhead were involved in creation, but the Holy Spirit was there. But when we come to spiritual regeneration or spiritual life, John 6 verses 63 is where we want to go. So John 6 verse 63, Jesus is speaking and he's speaking about uh, just how life comes, how, how uh, the flesh is no help uh, to doing what, to bringing life. And so he says in verse 63 of John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So essentially he was saying, you can work hard, but your, your working hard doesn't actually bring life. It is only by the Holy Spirit that life comes. And so we just take cue that the Holy Spirit is involved in the creation of life. And we know that uh, to be true when it comes to spiritual life, obviously. John 3 verse 3 is another passage that speaks about the Holy Spirit uh, giving life. Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus, uh, a teacher, and he 
Uh, we'll start in verse 1 so you get some context. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you do that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Essentially thinking of a fleshly answer to the problem, and that's not the answer. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at th- that I said to you, you must be born again. Right? So he goes on and explains this better to Nicodemus so he can understand. And then comes the great John 3.16 verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Spiritual life. This is a theme consistent throughout scripture. Spiritual life only comes by the spirit of God working. Right? So you cannot manufacture spiritual life. You cannot uh, convince spiritual life to come. It is the Spirit of God that has to do the work. Places like Ephesians 2 would remind us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so our, our spirits were dead. And the only way for our spirits to be brought to life is for the Holy Spirit to bring them to life. And so that's one of the general roles, main roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring life, to, bring, to create there's also the role of empowering. So we talked a little bit about Jesus being going in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we also are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is true for all disciples today. So Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus has, uh, just before he's ascending to heaven after his time on earth doing ministry, he is speaking to his disciples and he's actually telling them about what's to come. The fact that he must go away so the Holy Spirit can come. And he tells them this in Acts 1 verse 8, just telling them to Hey, to hang around and wait. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they will be his witnesses. So the power of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose there of evangelism, right? To be witnesses in all these, these places. So this was true of the the apostles, and it's also true of believers that we receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us at conversion. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later because it's a little bit different for the disciples. They were in a little bit different scenario. The disciples did greater ministry than what Jesus did. This is something Jesus actually told his disciples, and it's kind of mind-boggling for us, so we'll go there. John 14, 12. This is where Jesus is talking about, uh, well, Jesus is talking and he says this, verse 12, John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. And the idea he's going to the father, the Holy Spirit, the the comforter, one of his names uh, is coming. And the idea is there's actually the potential to do greater work, not in the sense of uh, necessarily like Jesus did the greatest work on the cross, obviously. But when it comes to making disciples, Jesus made a few disciples, 
But you fast forward to Acts chapter two, where Peter preaches a sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they've got like thousands of disciples. So God, the Holy Spirit is working through Peter. And since the time of Jesus, millions of disciples have been made for Jesus Christ, which is far, far more than what Jesus accomplished in his time on earth. So in terms of its scope, it's greater, not in the terms of necessarily like what Jesus did obviously enabled it all. It's greater. He's the foundation. He's the pillar of the church, right? He is the foundation. So we don't want to think that we're like greater than God in that way, but because of the Holy Spirit at work in us, which allows us to make disciples, we can actually do in this weird way, greater work in the terms of the scope. Now we're not ultimately doing the work, right? We're, we're faithfully following Jesus. We're faithfully sharing the word, but it is actually the Holy Spirit at work that's convicting, that's calling people, that's drawing them, that's uh, bringing new life, right? So it's just interesting to think of this, uh, the fact that the, we, are, we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to do ministry, to do evangelism, as Acts 1.8 talks about. The Holy Spirit also empowers us in, the, uh, in and through giving spiritual gifts. So this is where a lot of people like to spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. And so we'll go to some of those passages. Uh, we're not going to be exhaustive, uh, but we will cover a little bit. So 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the passages that uh, explains these spiritual gifts. These gifts are given for the good of the whole body. We'll see that. So they're given to Christians to believers in Jesus Christ for the purpose of building the church. This is God's, God's goal is, hey, we want to build the church, right? And the way to do that is his Holy Spirit gives gifts to certain individuals so that they can, that they can minister within the context of the church. So let's read a few uh, lines here from 1 Corinthians 12. This is the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul talking, and he says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So it's important right off the, the, the start, we realize Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed. We shouldn't be uninformed either. I feel like sometimes we're like way too informed about this topic at times that we like miss other roles of the Holy Spirit. But certainly at this time, he needed to inform them about what was going on with the Holy Spirit and these gifts. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So initially he's like right away. This is how you can tell if somebody possesses the Holy Spirit, if somebody is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is Jesus their Lord? Can they say Jesus is their Lord with conviction? Not can they say the words Jesus is Lord because you could ask an atheist to say the words, Jesus is Lord, and they could say them. They're not going to be like Jesus, like they can't say it. They can say it, but they can't say it and actually be true of their life. Similarly, no Christian could say Jesus is accursed and actually mean it if they have the Holy Spirit, right? So I can obviously read. I read that verse. I said Jesus is accursed, but that's not actually what I'm saying, right? And so this is true. He's right away just distinguishing this is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit says Jesus is Lord, and that's, that governs all of this. Then he says in verse 4, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So there's, there's many gifts, but there's one Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, 
but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is what we talked about last week a little bit. The Spirit is given for the common good. It's given to build others up. If you have been given a gift, which you will have been if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then that gift is not for you. It's not for you to just parade around and bring attention to yourself. It's not for you to use to feel lots of joy and happiness. It's for you to use to bring the common good, to build one another up, to uh, build God's church. And in doing so, you will feel affirmation in those things, but those are not the, the main goal. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then he goes on to use the illustration of a human body. It says there's a body that has many parts. Those parts are the one body. They're all to serve the one body. One part of the body doesn't just go off and do its own thing, right? And if one part of the body is hurt, the rest of the body cares, that kind of analogy. And so basically what we hear, see here, there's a list of some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to the people for the building up of the church. There's several other lists throughout scripture, though, that we're going to take a look at. So Ephesians 4 and verse 11. We were actually talking about this one just a little bit before the, uh, the class started, um, Nathan and I. So this, Paul is saying, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, etc. We want to grow up, essentially. So this is, uh, some have listed these as like gifts. Some have probably more accurately listed these as the, like, the five New Testament offices of leadership in the church. Apostles is those who saw the risen Lord who saw Jesus Christ resurrected. And so as soon as Jesus ascended and the people that saw him passed away, there were no more apostles, right? Those were the ones that saw Jesus. Prophets depends on how you understand prophecy. If you're and understanding this passage, if you think it's referring to like the prophets uh, who would have like, I guess, been more like, again, foundational in the church and those that like spoke and like spoke what God had revealed. Uh, if you think of that, then because we believe scripture, the canon is closed, that God's not revealing more scripture to us today. Uh, in that sense, if you think of prophecy in that sense, that's passed away. But if you think of prophecy in the sense of speaking God's truth forth, then that office could still exist. Evangelists, clearly those who share the gospel still exist. Shepherds, those are like pastors, right, is another language word that's used, those that are entrusted to oversee the church, and then teachers, right, those that are instructed to teach God's word. So this could be, some have thought of it as like spiritual gifts that uh, God gives, which is possible. There's probably gifts t 
tied to most of those other than apostleship. There's gift of prophecy listed in another passage, gift of uh, evangelism, shepherding, pastoring. I don't know if that's listed necessarily as a gift in another passage, but certainly teaching is. Um, and so kind of giving this idea of perhaps spiritual gifts, but otherwise offices. Let's go to another passage, Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. So this one, Paul, again, another spot talking about spiritual gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if serving service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then he talks about let love be genuine. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 12, they talk about spiritual gifts. Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And right after that has a whole chapter on love and then another chapter on spiritual gifts. This passage has a, talks about spiritual gifts and right away talks about love. And it's very, very important, I guess, that we remember as we're exercising these gifts of the Holy Spirit that he has given us to be used to build up the church, that we do so in love. That's like ground zero of how the gift is supposed to be used. But you'll notice as we're looking through these lists, no two lists are identical. And there's actually one more that we're going to go to, and then I'll make some comments on that. So 1 Peter 4, verse 11. This is one other passage that is sometimes listed as uh, talking about gifts. Verse 10, it says, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? So as we speak and we speak God's word, we're remembering we're going to speak this as though God is speaking through us. We want to speak his truth as accurately as we, as we can, right? As we serve, serving, realizing this is the strength God gives me to serve. And the whole purpose of all of these, the use of these gifts, true, not just of these in this passage, but also Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, is it's for the glory of Jesus Christ. So what we learn, we just look at the fact the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church these gifts are given to all believers. They're given for us to, uh, to build the church, to glorify God, to show love to one another. But we don't have an exhaustive list. So it would be probably foolish for us to say definitively there are only 12 spiritual gifts. There's only seven spiritual gifts, right? It's, it's likely because there's few in several passages and not all identical that we don't want to just come to this rock solid conclusion that this is like it, that there's nothing beyond it, right? Uh, nothing's mentioned here necessarily about a gift of like musical ability, but perhaps that's something that actually is, could be used by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there is, uh, I don't know if I have this passage here right now, but in Exodus, there are builders for the, the temple that actually, it says the spirit of God, like, basically equip these guys with the skill to build. And so as a, as a guy that loves building things, I like to think that that's a spiritual gift. I don't know if that's actually a New Testament spiritual gift, but I'll use it to glorify God anyways, right? 
So things to think about. Uh, yeah, go ahead. The fruits of the Spirit, how is that So the fruits of the Spirit is true for all believers. So these gifts, these gifts, not all believers. So 1 Corinthians, actually, that's a good point. So if we go to first, back to 1 Corinthians 12, we see a little later on, he talks about the body. And I, I kind of summarize this part, but it's helpful, right? So he talks about, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, right? We're in one spirit, we're baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So there's radical unity in the body of Christ, that we're united as one body, but the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So each one of us in this room are not carbon copies, right? Which is why discipleship cannot be an assembly line approach because we're not going like, I love Chrysler and I love minivans, but we don't do minivan assembly line in church, right? We don't do, everybody just does their one part and we make the exact same disciples at the end of the day. Disciples are different, right? They have certain things in common, but God has designed them to complement each other. And so there's, yeah, there's, I guess, as we use the analogy of the body, some are more prominent in the gifting and ability that God has given them, right? If, if somebody is leading worship on Sunday or teaching and preaching, or if somebody is, uh, you know, up front kind of using their gifts, they're obviously more prominent. But the analogy of the body tells us that all are actually equally important. Some are more prominent, but they're all important, right? And they're all vital to the health of the body. And so if some that have maybe less prominent roles think, I'm not that big, I'm not that important part of a team and, and leave, the body actually suffers, right? So there is a sense in which every single one of us in this room as believers in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an essential part of the body of this church, you're an essential part of your local church. Now, you don't want to take that too far. Obviously, all of us are not essential in the sense of God could do it without us, right? We're, and we don't want to get like a prideful, like I am necessary for this to work, right? But at the same time, if you leave your local church or you don't serve in the capacity that you're gifted in your local church, the local church is missing out. There's a, there's a part to which it's not functioning as a healthy body, right? And if you use the analogy of the body and take that, some parts of the body get sick, right? So there are certain times when people with spiritual gifts are not at their prime functioning because there's something going on, right? And the analogy of the body is the body just doesn't, I don't care about it, cut it off, right? The body is, we're going to like focus our attention to help them recover so that they can again contribute to the health of the body, right? If, if it's always my thumb that's always sore and it's always annoying, like eventually I'd be like, like start focusing on the rest of the body thumb, right? But we, we have to realize that, uh, I guess, interdependence that is in there in the body of Christ. So when it comes to the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are everyone is applied. So when it comes to like the gift of teaching, not everyone is given the gift of teaching. When it comes to the gift of evangelism, while we're all called to evangelize and we're all called to teach in some regard, we don't all have the gift of evangelism. So we're not all going to be absolutely phenomenal at it. We're not going to see absolutely huge fruit from our evangelism. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to still be faithful in that. Same with encouragement. You may, you're, you're still called to encourage people, even if you don't, 
if you don't have the gift of encouragement or exhortation, etc. But those with the gift of it have this, this uh, I guess it depends on how you understand the gift functioning, but I think the best way to understand it probably is this, like, this ability given by the Holy Spirit to see fruit in that area. That the fruit, it's not, not you necessarily, but you will produce more fruit in your efforts than somebody that does not have the gift. Um, would I think be accurate. But when it comes to the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we're all called to display the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. right? Self-control. So those are, those are just as, and those, I guess some people will be more patient than others, but I don't think they, there's no evidence that that would be called like a gift to be more patient. Um, so does that help? Yeah, makes sense? Okay, so, so, the gifts are for the good of the whole body. No person has all of the gifts. Some people might have more than other. We're not, there's no like definitive text that talks about like you're given all these gifts, but the body analogy kind of explains to us nobody has them all and everybody does not have all one gift that's exactly the same, for example. So not everybody in this room or nobody in this room can possess all the gifts. And it's true that not all the people in this room have the gift of teaching, let's say. Right? It could be true, but it's probably likely not true. And so we just realize, again, the interdependence there. All gifts are important. And uh, we spoke about this last week, but the Holy Spirit decides what gift you get. Right? You don't, uh, that's a gift. <laughs> a, gift is, a gift isn't something you get. Well, maybe it is in our house. Christmas time comes and we all we actually make lists of what we want people to buy for us, right? And that's how gifts work, just so that we don't end up with wasted gifts that we didn't want, right? That's not how it works with the Holy Spirit. He gives you a gift. You can seek out. We want to search. We want to earnestly desire the greater gifts Paul talks about. But at the end of the day, it's up to the, the sovereignty of God saying, here's the gift that you need, right? And I think that's... Uh, really good because otherwise probably there would be some gifts that would just be monopolized and everybody would want them and other gifts would lose out, right? So we'll come back to uh, gifts a little bit later as we talk about perhaps what, um, what we understand being active today. It's kind of a, a little bit more of a controversial topic, but we'll kind of leave that for a little bit. So another role that the Holy Spirit has is the role of revealing, so he has the role of creating. We've talked about that. He has the role of empowering. Now he has the role of revealing. So he reveals sin. We talked about that last week. John 16, verse 8. He reveals sin. Interestingly, let's just go there for a moment. Because I was reading something this week that kind of made me re-look at this passage. John 16, verse 7. This is where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I didn't, the first time I read this, I just thought, okay, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. But there's a, a element where I think it must be true that the Holy Spirit actually convicts not just Christians, but like convicts the world concerning sin. So that, the whole, that people actually realize to some degree, obviously sin like messes with our, our moral 
core, but there's some degree which conviction is probably present in, I, I, I guess to some degree, conviction must be present in everyone's life. There's some that the Holy Spirit convicts and obviously calls and, and brings to repentance, but it's just interesting to think that the Holy Spirit does not, uh, to think that perhaps unbelievers aren't uh, exempted from the Holy Spirit having some degree of influence, just like unbelievers experience the common grace of God, right? The sun rises and sets on the unbeliever as well as the believer, right? Uh, the unbeliever is made well from, uh, like their bodies fight diseases as well as the believer's bodies fight diseases, right? Um, and so there's a, a sense in which God's common grace applies. And here maybe there's a sense of like a common conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. But certainly to, um, to those who are believers, there was a, a point when the Holy Spirit very clearly brought conviction of our own sin before God. He revealed that to us. He, he kind of opened our eyes to it. So the Holy Spirit reveals sin. He reveals truth. We mentioned last week as well, John 14, 26. He illuminates Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. I find this, this is a prayer that Paul has uh, prayed for the, the church at Ephesus. And this is his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The, the Holy Spirit, that he gives the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, illumined, illuminated, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked, this is like a run-on sentence, <laughs> so you always think you're getting to the end and there's no period. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, etc. We won't go further. The whole idea is he's praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would be illuminated, that the truth of who God is, what God has done, would, would be clear to the unbeliever. So the Holy Spirit illuminates truth for the, un, for the, for the believer. He brings it uh, to our eyes. So you, you can attest to this, and I think we may have talked about this last week too. You'll maybe be reading through scripture, and you're reading a passage that you've maybe read before, but weren't actually particularly focused, or God's done some other things in your life, and you read that, and it just makes sense. And all of a sudden, it clicks. That's perhaps the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I can remember very clearly, I was telling the young adults, a couple of young adults on Monday night about this. I was reading my Bible as a teenager at our, young, or our youth program at the church that I grew up in, and we were being instructed to read through Philippians. And I was reading through Philippians, and I read the whole, the phrase, to live, is, uh, to die is, sorry, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I just, as I was reading that, I'm like, it just, it clicked in my head. It just made sense. And I was like so excited by it. I was like, it finally makes sense, right? And that was, I believe, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit flicking on another light switch in that area, right? Illuminating truth. When we talk about illuminating truth, it's probably important to recognize that it doesn't just mean understanding truth so much as it means understanding and applying truth. So when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, when it comes to, let's say, understanding a biblical text. An unbeliever could read a biblical text 
and understand English well, understand how to put the sentence structure together and come to the conclusion and write a commentary about what that text means. And you as a Christian might be like, wow, they really are insightful. They really understand it. I've, I've, I remember um, last fall being at a conference, vertical church conference, and one of the, the speakers mentioning that he sat through a class where somebody taught through a book of the Bible. And he's like, I have never heard it that clearly explained. It was like crystal clear, really well organized. And then found out that the speaker was not a believer. It's like, how does that work? Right? So unbelievers can understand scripture, but unbelievers will not apply scripture. Right? And so the Holy Spirit works not in just understanding, but application, right? Illuminating so that it's like, not only is it true, but it's like, it's true lived out. Right? Um, so just understand that about the, the illuminating nature of the Holy Spirit as he reveals. He also reveals scripture or prophecy. So this obviously applies to prior to our time, but 2 Peter 1 verse 21 is a really important uh, verse when it comes to our understanding of scripture. Hence, it's highlighted in my Bible. So 2 Peter 1 verse 21, Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No, no prophecy that was actually true, right? Was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So talking about scripture, none of these scriptures was produced by the will of man. It's not like 1 Corinthians was penned by the will of Paul. It was Paul spoke, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call this inspiration, right? This is the doctrine of inspiration that we believe all 66 books of the Bible, God used human authors to write but they wrote in such a way as that they were writing the words of God. God communicated through their personalities, through their linguistic abilities, right? So some of them are more linguistically beautiful than others, but yet they are the words of God. So the Holy Spirit was instrumental in authoring (laughs) scripture. Not surprising, right? So what we have here. If you have a Bible that was 66 books, we have 66 books written out of the Holy Spirit's breath. Like God breathed, all scriptures, God breathed, and it's profitable. So like we have revelation right here in front of us, right? As, as it's true to the, original, uh, to the original manuscripts. So revealing scripture and prophecy was a role of the Holy Spirit. The canon is now closed. We believe that nobody's writing a 67th book to uh, scripture. And so because the, the scripture is closed, the Holy Spirit is not actively revealing new scripture that's authoritative for all people, right? The Holy Spirit still leads and guides us absolutely and applies scripture. But the Holy Spirit, um, when it comes to authoring new scripture, that's not something we should look for today. So the Mormons look for it, right? They, they think the Holy, that Holy Spirit or uh, that God inspired the Book of Mormon, right? But we obviously realize that's not true. And the reason we know that is in Revelation, uh, it actually says no one's supposed to add a word to the book or take a word away from the book, right? We're not supposed to add to or take away from God's word. And so that's uh, just helping us to understand it's closed. Right There's an uh, interesting quote that I read over at uh, gotquestions.org. 
which is a helpful site. It says, as a result, the gift of prophecy transitioned from primarily being a declaration of new revelation from God to primarily or exclusively, depending, being a declaration of what God has already revealed as recorded in, in his word. So the Holy Spirit as it relates to prophecy, obviously initially was revealing all new information. There was no written Bible, right? But as scripture was written, rated down, gathered together, canon closed, the role of prophecy moved more from revealing new to re-revealing what's there and illuminating and guiding us into understanding that, revealing that. The Holy Spirit also guides and directs people. We're going to just do a couple more verses and then we'll take a, a quick break. So Romans 8 verses 14. We have verse explaining, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right? So the Holy Spirit leads us. Uh, in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit in a sense, reveals that truth to us. And so he guides and he directs um, us as his people. Romans 8 verse 4 also speaks, uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Kind of describing how we live. We live according to the spirit. And finally, the last role that we're going to talk about that the Holy Spirit has is in Titus 3 verse 5 where it talks about him cleansing us, right? Sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. So God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit was active in our regeneration, in our turning from dead to alive, from sinner to saint, and bringing about that renewal. And so that's a, uh, another aspect or role of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that. Uh, you'll see that as you just read through scripture. So those are some of the roles, some of the, the major categories of roles. His, his creative ability, or his bringing life, his role of empowering, of revealing and cleansing, and then all the, the sub ones under there. So let's take a quick five minute break. Then we'll come back and talk about the differences between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then some of the, the more puzzling passages that come uh, talking about, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, etc. Okay, and then we'll have uh, some Q&A after that. So take a quick five-minute break, and we will come right back. So one of the interesting, uh, one of the interesting topics that concerns me when I start talking about the Holy Spirit is trying to understand... How did the Holy Spirit function in the Old Covenant? And how does the Holy Spirit function in the New Covenant? Because there seems to be some differences. So, now, there probably aren't actually as many differences as I was, um, as I kind of like originally thought, as you read about, okay, the Holy Spirit giving life. The Holy Spirit absolutely gave life in the Old Covenant in the sense of, uh, Nobody comes to faith apart from the Holy Spirit doing some kind of revealing or opening the eyes of or making them aware of. And maybe it's not as explicitly described in the Old Covenant, but um, the Holy Spirit's involved in the creation of the world. It's creation of spiritual life to some degree. So 
in creating, in empowering. We see the Holy Spirit. This is where we see the Holy Spirit a little bit different in some ways. The Holy Spirit empowered certain people for certain tasks very clearly. We'll see some passages such as Joshua, uh, Numbers 27, verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. The Spirit was in Joshua was on Joshua for the purpose of what he was going to do, which was to lead the people of Israel. And so the Spirit commissioned him for that. God commissioned him through, through Moses for that. So the Spirit certainly empowered people in the Old Covenant, uh, though maybe uh, a little bit different. The Spirit definitely did, um, did work of revelation in terms of the Scripture was being written in the Old Covenant, right? So those men who are writing Scripture, Moses, uh, the prophets, that wasn't them doing it on their own accord. That was the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. So absolutely uh, similar in terms of revealing and the, the role of cleansing. A little bit different in the sense of, okay, people became, it's kind of like, how did people become believers in God in the old covenant? Well, they had faith in God, but they didn't actually recognize that Jesus had died because he hadn't died yet, but their faith was forward-looking in God so such that they were saved. So Jesus' sacrifice at zero AD backwards applies to all those that had faith in God, in the one true God, uh, and so that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for them. And so in that sense, the Holy Spirit does the work for them. Where it's different for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament is in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, all believers have the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the Old Testament, all believers did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now I was, I was taught, I think, or at least I think I was taught, the words that came to my mind always when I thought about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was that the Holy Spirit came in in the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit only came on in the Old Covenant. But then if you read passages in the Old Testament and old, uh, under the Old Covenant, there's several spots where it actually does talk about the Holy Spirit being in or dwelling in people, such as take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. And so the spirit did by our all accounts. And we'll actually, let's look at a few before we kind of make that statement. So Joshua, this is one example where the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament uh, very clearly. Judges 13.25, there's more than this but these kind of give you a a sampling. Judges 13, 25, or verse 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahaneah, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtol. Uh, Eshtol. So Samson, other judges, the Holy Spirit definitely worked in their life, but Samson, (laughs) if you know Samson, he sometimes did things properly and for the Lord. Like most of the judges, he was nowhere near a perfect guy. He was not the ideal, uh, the ideal deliverer for Israel, but God used these people and the Holy Spirit worked in their life. If you read through Judges, you'll see more examples of that, but it was not a permanent indwelling of Samson. Uh, certainly not, but the Holy Spirit did come on him, uh, in this case, in power. Saul... 1 Samuel 10.10, it tells us about Saul, um, 10 verse 10. It explains to us here, uh, a group of prophets met 
met uh, Saul and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. It's not actually in this case, it's actually not probably, Saul wasn't probably super eager to be prophesying at this moment. God kind of, he was going after David and his messengers started prophesying. The Holy Spirit came on them. Saul started prophesying because the Holy Spirit came on him. And I'm, I'm guessing in this case, he was not exactly thrilled, uh, but the Holy Spirit was working through this situation, kind of a unique situation, but Saul, the Holy Spirit worked on him uh, to the point where they said, is Saul also among the prophets, right? They had asked this question. So there's an example of Saul, David, 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 to 16. And 13, when Samuel is uh, anointing David, verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, that's David, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, right? And so uh, from that day forward, Sam, David is, he's anointed. He has the Holy Spirit on him for the purpose of leading the nation of Israel as king, which is interesting because in Psalm 51, David is crying out to God after he has sinned with Bathsheba and he cries out to God and he says something which we probably want to look at. So Psalm 51, he cries out to God, right? Wash me from my iniquity, wash me thoroughly. And then a little bit later on here, verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So there's, a, there's some confusion or maybe multiple debates about what exactly this means. But when you pair it with the fact that the Holy Spirit rushed on David for the purpose of him being king, it seems possible or likely that what David is saying here is, not what a New Testament Christian should say. We're not, we're not concerned that the Holy Spirit's going to leave us. We're not saying like, hey, we've sinned, Lord. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me because the Holy Spirit permanently indwells us now. But for David, he realized that the Holy Spirit in a special way was empowering him in his role as king, right? Uh, empowering him for this role. And as he sinned, he's realizing I have totally royally messed up what God is trying to do. I'm, I'm setting a terrible example I'm ruining things. And so he cries out, don't, like, don't take away your presence from me, God. Just as like the people of Israel with Moses, uh, they're like, like God, you, your presence has to go with us. Your presence is what makes us distinct. Like, if you don't go with us, we're lost, right? And this is what David's crying out to God and saying, like, if you're not, if you're not in this kingship, if, you're not, if your Holy Spirit's gone out of the picture, it's done, right? And so he says, like, cast me not away from your presence. We don't read this verse even though it makes for a great song, um, we don't read this and apply this to us. So like young people who maybe haven't been around this verse or exposed to it or thinking through it, young in the faith, I should say, might read this and think that when they sin and they sin severely, God could actually take his Holy Spirit from them. That's not something we have to concern ourselves with because the Holy Spirit permanently indwells those that follow him. Philippians 1, 6, right? He starts the work in you. He's going to complete it. Ephesians 1 talks about the spirit being the seal, right? So we are given the spirit and that's like our down payment of the inheritance we're going to receive. It's not a down payment that Jesus is going to retract, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a permanent thing for us. So anyways, another example of the Holy Spirit coming in the, David's case on. But then this is a New Testament passage, 
But the New Testament, it's still old covenant because Jesus hasn't died yet. So Luke 1 verse 15. Uh, I was reading this a couple of weeks ago for in preparation for one of our Q&As at the university. And I was reading it. I was like, oh, I didn't realize this. This is talking about John the Baptist. And it says here, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. John the Baptist, this is being told about him. John the Baptist is going to be, was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is before Pentecost. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's even more unique, I think, or well, it's kind of unique. He's filled with the Spirit from birth. So did he have a choice in that? Anyways, that's another question, right? We we talk about like free will and all this kind of thing, and it's like, well, I think, look at the like look at this. He didn't have it, John the Baptist wasn't like choosing, right? Uh, in, it's interesting in the old covenant, as we look at when the Holy Spirit manifests His presence in people's lives. I, I, I'm not sure there's an example where somebody actually is like requesting it, and it manifests its presence. It's actually the Holy Spirit sovereignly decides. Whereas in the, in the new covenant, obviously the Holy Spirit sovereignly decides in who to awaken their spirit. But then we, you know, as we are awakened, we immediately place our faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit does a work of regeneration in us. And after that, we'll talk about this a little bit later. After that, there's a, there's a dynamic in which we and the Holy Spirit work together in our, in our sanctification. So there is a way that you can actually resist what the Holy Spirit's going to do in your life. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. Uh, you can not be surrendered to the Spirit. Or you can, you can actually give the Spirit rule and control in your life. So it's just interesting. John the Baptist, pre-Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Kind of an example. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, though, for a specific task, right? His specific task was to pave the way Uh, for Jesus announcing the Messiah coming. Exodus 31 verses two to five is where it talks about that artistic, those artistic guys with the, uh, that, that spiritual gift. And Joel 2 and Acts 2 are uh, important passages as well. Joel 2 talks prophetically about a time. He's talking in the old covenant, but he's talking forward saying, there's going to be a time when these spirits just like poured out. And then in Acts 2, Peter, as he's, speaking or Acts 2 or 3, Peter actually quotes that passage because after Pentecost, that was the fulfillment of Joel 2. So saying the Spirit's now going to be poured out. Now it's on all believers, right? So all believers have the Spirit indwelling them. And it's just a, um, in a sense, it's the, the age where the Holy Spirit really is at work. So those are some differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In a, in a lot of ways, there's not differences in what the Holy Spirit does, just in who the Holy Spirit indwells. Uh, and to the, the scope of his, his ministry is greatly expanded in the new covenant. So now a couple of uh, some, some passages or some things that maybe pop up that you've heard a lot about the Holy Spirit that we'll cover for a few minutes. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We've uh, maybe looked at this before. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's a passage where Jesus is performing works. The Pharisees say, that's, they're attributing it to Satan. 
Jesus says, that's not how it works, right? It's not by, Satan doesn't cast out Satan. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and I'm trying to see which passage it's in. Uh, I had referenced it earlier, but he essentially says, I don't want to say essentially, I want to actually get to it. Um, he speaks about the, commit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this is how we're going to do it. Blasphemy. Matthew twelve thirty one. So, okay, so he is talking about if I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out, right? And he goes on, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So this is one that is often very um, very debated and discussed. Essentially, if you want to wrap it up in a nutshell, it's saying you're, you're taking a work that was done by the Holy Spirit. In this case, Jesus did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are attributing it. You're maliciously attributing that work to Satan. That kind of thing, Jesus is saying there's no forgiveness for. Which makes sense. So if you're, you're sitting and you're wondering, okay, like, have I committed that sin? And you're concerned about having committed the sin. The saying goes that you probably haven't committed that sin because you actually, you actually care. You're actually concerned about not attributing Satan's work or God's work to Satan. Some kind of work around this to say, you know, it's the sin of unbelief which I guess at the root of it could be true because if you're attributing a work of God to Satan, you're disbelieving the work of God, right? And as long as you continue in disbelief about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can't work to regenerate you. And so that is, in the sense, the unpardonable, unpardonable sin. Um, at the moment that you stop disbelieving and start believing, then there would be the idea that you could... Uh, perhaps repent, but those that go as far as to like maliciously call out like what the Pharisees were doing, right? They're calling out what God is doing and calling it a work of Satan. That is, that is what is called the unpardonable sin. So here's why I think this is important. Uh, we want to be, we want to be careful people to not start calling things works of Satan that are in fact the works of God. And I don't think we're going to do this accidentally. Um, but I think, I think it is something to caution us. So some, some, uh, some teachers will feel more comfortable, I guess, calling something satanic that they think doesn't look Christian. For example, kind of diving into a, a little bit of a messy topic, but tongues, speaking in tongues. There will be some Christian teachers that will say, the modern idea of speaking in tongues is in fact demonic. I don't think I'm comfortable saying that. And I don't know if I want to say that. Now, there could be certain instances where you could see very clearly the fruit of somebody uh, doing something that the fruit is just very, very dark and demonic, in which case it would maybe be okay to say that. But as a blanket statement to say all speaking in tongues is demonic, I think that's just, I think that's, being a little bit hasty with your words. And especially when a passage like this talks about attributing the works of God to the Satan, I think it just makes us think and it should make us stop and think very, very carefully 
before we start to uh, speak about things that we're maybe not entirely sure of and attribute them to Satan. Last thing I want to be guilty of before God is God doing a work that I don't quite see in context or see fully, and I say with bold brashness, that's Satan, right? I, I totally never want to be guilty of doing that. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I don't think you're going to be, uh, if you are seeking the Lord, if you're following him, you're trying to understand him, you're discerning him from his word, I don't think this is something you have to be worried about. Uh, and if you are worried about it, then like seek forgiveness from the Lord, right? Uh, I think this is a perpetual state of disbelief in the, in the power of what God is doing and dispo- a perpetual attributing it. Um, this may be a good way to understand it, but yeah. So that's kind of one that uh, comes up a lot. Another phrase that comes up a lot is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So John mentions when he's baptizing people, he says, you know, I'm baptizing you with water, but Jesus is going to baptize you. There, there's one coming rather, who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So a couple of the passages that speak about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3 verse 11 He says, John, I baptize you with water for repentance. So when John was actually baptizing people, this baptism is not like what the baptism that we do. We do a baptism that's, yes, of repentance, but it's also, we believe, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the sense that at conversion, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So John's baptism was a, a, a baptism of repentance, but the one who's coming after is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and fire. Some think that fire maybe talks about like the purifying effect of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it kind of maybe alludes to Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit comes in power and he's manifested in tongues of fire that are on the heads of the people there. Um, and so the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we talk, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is brought up here. It's brought up in a few other passages. We'll not go there, but Mark 1.8, you can write down. Luke 3.16 and John 1.33. Another passage which speaks about it is Acts 1 verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is Jesus speaking, talking about what was to happen at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come. So the reason I bring this up is because in certain theologies out there, there are those that would see this and they would say, well, Jesus said they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But certainly the disciples are already followers of Jesus. They're already regenerated. They're already believers, right? Which is true. There were believers in Jesus Christ and they had not yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit because it's a transitional period, right? This is the period where the Holy Spirit is coming to baptize believers, to indwell believers. And that's why it's the, these believers had not yet. So then we go to Acts 2. The believers are all baptized in the spirit, they now have this Holy Spirit indwelling them, giving them power to do this evangelistic mission. But then you go through Acts and you find a few places, Acts, I think it is 10, Acts 19, where there's accounts of people that have not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some of those accounts, it's likely that they understood John's baptism of repentance, repentance of, you know, we're repenting from our sin, but they hadn't realized yet Jesus Christ had risen and that he was now then the Holy Spirit had come. So they were partially converted, but not fully converted. And so as they could, were converted, the Holy Spirit, uh, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, this idea. Some, it's probable, again, because it's a transitional period, 
where it's old covenant to new covenant, that it was, wasn't until the apostles came to meet with them that the, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so the reason we bring this all up is because this has been used by many to say that it's normal today for Christians to believe in Jesus Christ and subsequent to their conversion, years after, months after, whatever, there to be a second blessing, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because they would go to Acts and they would point out, well, there was these believers that weren't yet baptized. They would use these few passages in a transitional period. So this, is, this would be uh, common in, I guess, more Pentecostal uh, theology. Not all Pentecostals believe this, but some uh, would believe there's a second blessing or the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, if you go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So that's one passage. And then also Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if you have Christ, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So essentially saying, if you have the spirit, you are of Christ. If you don't have the spirit, you're not. And so this is where we would go to say, no, 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 that's a transitional period. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is now at conversion for all those post-transitional period, when we believe in Jesus Christ and we place our faith in him, the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration and renewal and the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at that time where we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that is the, just clear uh, from passages like this that speak of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, all of us, right? It's not, um, it's not conditional upon some future baptism of the Holy Spirit. So this is an important, uh, important for us to realize, just so we understand as we're maybe dialoguing with the people that might teach otherwise on the Holy Spirit this way. Wayne Grudem, I think, wisely points out, it's kind of important for us not to develop this like two-staged or two-tiered approach to Christianity of the, you know, the baptized in the Holy Spirit and the not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, in, in Bible school, I had a, a friend that was uh, Pentecostal of the leanings that thought, you know, that it was basically more blessed if you could uh, speak in tongues and have this baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said like, you know, he didn't look down on people, but it kind of creates this, I haven't really arrived if I haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, I have been baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion, right? So it was this, it kind of like, it kind of segregates Christians into, you're, you're, you're the spiritual Christians, you're the unspiritual. And actually that has its roots in what's called the holiness movement. So there used to be, and there still is in certain sects of Christianity, this idea that there's a deeper Christian life that some kind of get into, right? There are, there are spiritual Christians that like you can maybe divide Christians into two camps. There's spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. There's uh, disciples and just Christians right? And we want to we be careful to dividing and making categories like that. Paul did, when he was writing to the Corinthians, say to them, I could not address you as spiritual, but had to address you as like fleshly, as like infants, because they weren't mature. But what he's doing there is he's not trying to divide Christian, Christians into two categories, saying you're either an infant or you're mature. 
because there's a whole spectrum in there of people who are growing in their, their walk with Christ. And so we want to be careful about making two pockets of Christians, like the super spiritual and the not super spiritual and dividing them with a real clear line. That's like this experience you have to go through because it creates jealousy. It creates pride on the other end. Uh, and it creates not the unity that God is desiring. Now, what is true? Uh, actually, before I go further, it's also important. This is kind of maybe a little bit more um, hot button topic in some ways, but it's also important that we don't create two tiers of baptized in water Christians and unbaptized in water Christians. So we kind of have this idea in our culture, in our time, that you can be a Christian and not be baptized. The problem is you don't actually find unbaptized Christians in the New Testament. So it'd be like having a baby that has no name. Like there's some babies that have no name for like a couple of days if their parents are trying to decide and trying to figure it out, but it's like very unusual. Most of the time, a baby has a name within the first, let's say like a couple hours, right? Think of how unusual that is. That's how unusual it should be to have an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ. The New Testament just doesn't show us that. The problem is what we have when we start affirming people in their faith before they're baptized, what, what we're trying to protect is we're trying to protect salvation by faith alone, right? We don't want baptism to become a work that they think they have to do to be saved. But what we're doing is we're actually creating two classes of Christians. We're creating, you can hang out here and be a Christian and not be baptized. And you can be a baptized Christian. We kind of create this, this, this stepping stone that once you're maybe mature enough, you can reach. Once you, you know, you've been around the block enough. Once you can kind of make the decision for yourself or whatever the argument might be, you can get baptized. But the problem is, it's just, it's just very, very dangerous. Because we start creating this idea that you can be a disobedient follower of Jesus Christ. You can't, like, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, you will disobey, but that should not be characteristic of your whole life, right? I remember a couple months ago chatting with a young adult about a certain area of obedience uh, that kind of is maybe a little bit debatable among Christians, whether this is something that applies to us today. And they were really, really fascinated about this topic but they're not baptized. They're not, they're like a believer in Jesus, but they haven't yet been baptized. Well, I'm like, okay, like back up. God is more concerned right now that you are disobeying him by not being baptized than that you are worrying about this secondary issue of obedience that we're not even totally sure we need to apply today that way. But it's how it goes, right? People get caught up on all these things and they miss the foundational, hey, we're to believe and to be baptized. It's the first step of obedience for a Christian. So we want to just understand that. You know, as a parent, I have kids that are young and I, I'm going to, I, Lord willing, see them come to faith and I'm Lord willing going to see them be baptized. And this is where I think for young kids, it's kind of hard to understand when is the appropriate time for them to be baptized, right? We kind of wonder, should we push them towards baptism? Should we not push them towards baptism? And as I've been t dialoguing with parents and talking about this issue, I just keep coming back to this thought, which is why would we not push our children and encourage them, like very sternly encourage them to be baptized? Because it's obedience to Christ. 
It's obedience to God. If it was about lying, we would absolutely strongly advise them to tell the truth. We would absolutely strongly advise them to honor their parents, honor their teachers. But when it comes to baptism, it's kind of like it becomes this like personal decision that they get to make. That's not really how it works. Coming to faith is a different story. I would never encourage somebody to pressure their children or push their children into making a step, a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. But if you can make a declaration on your own and you can articulate it, right? A child could articulate, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I know what that means. I know I'm a sinner and he died for me. Then you absolutely want to encourage them to be baptized. You want to, this is, this is a step of obedience God's called us to take. Yeah, it's hard. We want to encourage them in that. Um, encourage them. If you feel, and the pushback I sometimes receive is, well, I'm not sure. I want them to, I want them to make the decision. Well, then I would just go back and say, well, did they make the decision to follow Jesus? Would you actually, did they make the decision to follow Jesus? Because if they made the decision to follow Jesus, they made a decision to be baptized, right? And so if you feel confident that they've made that decision to follow Jesus, then baptism is a natural next step. If you're worried about them being baptized and that it might not be their own, then back up and are we worried about their initial salvation? Is that their decision? And sometimes they have difficulty articulating it, so you've got to wait and be gracious and patient as they try to understand it. But anyways, we don't want to create two tiers of Christian, disobedient and obedient Christians, right? We don't want to create that with baptism of the Holy Spirit and the same one there. There is, however, different stages of maturity among Christians. So being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. It uh, talks about drunkenness right before. It says, don't get drunk, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine. Don't be like controlled by wine, right? But for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. That's a present imperative, meaning it's active, it's ongoing. The best way to understand this is to be continually filled by the Holy Spirit. Not a one-time filling, but a continual filling. The best way to think of this is not as a cup, and thinking, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, because that would think, indicate in your mind, I don't actually possess the full measure of the Holy Spirit. We all do, though. We all possess the full measure of the Holy Spirit. The full Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. But that doesn't mean he has control over all of our lives. We have to surrender control. Much like when it talks about wine, right? Don't get drunk with wine. Don't give up control to wine where it like you start to do things that don't that aren't true that aren't true to you be filled with the holy spirit be controlled with the holy spirit um and then it kind of explains how to addressing one another with songs hymns and spiritual songs right so be filled better way to think of it as being controlled than as like a glass being filled the opposite of being filled is quenching or grieving the holy spirit so first thessalonians 5 19 tells us not to quench the holy spirit in other words, it kind of is like the idea of like a fire. You know, you put a, can, a glass over a little candle and the candle starts to get weak and dim. It doesn't have full oxygen, can't thrive, right? We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. This is where we actually have an active part in the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives where we can actually, um, we can actually hinder the work of God in our life by quenching the Holy Spirit. And the way we quench the Holy Spirit is simply by sinning, right? Uh, when we do the opposite of the things we're commanded to. So quenching the Holy Spirit, grieving, Ephesians 4, verse 30. 
talks about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So if you want to know what grieves the Holy Spirit of God, look at that list. That's what grieves, grieves the Holy Spirit of God. That's what quenches the Holy Spirit of God. When you allow sin to run rampant, bitterness, wrath, anger, etc. So we want to avoid those things. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, which is just interesting that it, it has this emotional component, that he has this emotional component to be grieved by our sin, which is so, um, I guess, it just helps us to realize our sin is actually, in that sense, hurting our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We're called instead to live by the Spirit, Galatians 5. And this is where we get the fruit of the Spirit, um, etc., I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the, desi- the desires of the flesh. And then it goes on to list what the desires of the flesh are. They're actually against the Spirit. They're on two separate teams and they war against each other, right? If you're submitted to the flesh, you cannot be submitted to the Spirit. If you're submitted to the Spirit, the flesh will not be uh, in control. And so we want to be living by the Spirit. Some talk about uh, maybe being slain in the spirit. Slain in the spirit is, as far as I can tell, not found in scripture as a phrase. There's instances in scripture that are used to support the practice. So um, I'll, write, I'll quickly rattle these off and you can look them up on your own time. So we have a little bit of time for Q&A. But so some examples, Acts 9 verses 4, Paul on the road, uh, on the road encounters the Lord and he falls down. Uh, that's maybe one example. Revelations 1 verses 17, John's vision. He's, he's receiving this vision from the Lord and in this vision he falls down. Uh, another example is in Re- Revelations 4 verses 10. Elders are casting their crowns down. And there's a few other passages that I didn't, uh, didn't uh, record here. But these are instances where people would go to talk about being slain in the spirit. Now, I'm not, I haven't been around situations where that's happened. I've watched lots of YouTube videos, obviously, you know, when the guy goes up and they fall backwards into these catcher's arms or whatever else. Um, one of the, the uh, resources I was looking at suggested, it's just interesting when you look at all these proof texts they go to for slain in the spirit, people are usually either having a rare encounter with God or a, a vision from God. Uh, oftentimes they fall on their face before God and never as the result of somebody's touching them or hand. And so it's just very interesting that the, the way it's demonstrated by these, these preachers is actually incongruent with the text that they're using to support it from scripture. Um, and so, yeah, it's just interesting. So it's probably not something we want to, uh, to see as biblically warranted this idea of being slain in the spirit. Mark sixteen seventeen is one verse that uh, when we talk about uh, people having these kind of strange views about the Holy Spirit or about uh, what New Testament believers should behave themselves like, they go to a passage like this. It says in Mark sixteen seventeen, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So if you are of the charismatic, uh, 
nature, you're going to go to a passage like this and be like, boom, like three of the things that like we talk about all the time are right there. Casting out demons, speaking in tongues, healings. There's also this curious one about picking up serpents though and poison, which there's actually churches that do this, right? And I was looking up and I'm like, like seriously, they like part of their worship service is handling snakes. Like I just can't understand it, right? And one pastor died. I'm sure it's happened lots of times, right? He got bitten by the snake. The, the paramedics come and they're pleading with him to give him the antidote, which is like right there. And he's like, no. And it's just like, it's, it's ludicrous, right? It's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. How does that bring glory to God? What you need to know is Mark 16, that latter part of Mark 16, if you read in your Bible, you'll notice often there's a little line that says the earliest manuscripts do not contain Mark. Mark 16. You'll also notice if you're keen listening through our Simply Following Jesus sermon series, we actually never covered this chunk of Mark 16. And that's because it's likely best understood as not actually being authentic and original. Now it's included, and this is a little bit of like, there's debate then back and forth, but the earliest manuscripts probably added this chunk because Mark's ending is so abrupt. And people are like, it's so abrupt. Like, the early scribes probably were like, it needs, it needs that like, great commission sending, ending. Uh, and so likely, because the earliest manuscripts do not have it, uh, it's probably not. Now, it's been in the English translation for so long, like King James will have it, etc. And so it's included here because the, the, um, those that are translating like the ESV, the NIV, etc. Are, are not to the point where they're going to take it out, but they put that little like, hey, this is this is like not in the earliest manuscripts. It's probably not authentic. So what I would say is whether we take it as authentic or not, don't build a whole theology off of these passages, right? Same with, there's a passage in uh, one of the other gospels where Jesus confronts the woman caught in adultery that everybody's throwing stones at and he, or is ready to throw stones at. And he says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. That passage, again, you'll read the little lines. It says the earliest manuscripts don't contain these. So just be careful if you're going to start teaching dogmatically about something based on texts that were like, hey, we're not quite, uh, we're actually probably not in the original. So something to think about there uh, when it comes to these. That doesn't mean those other things aren't necessarily true and active, but we just don't want to necessarily use this text to be the one to support it. Otherwise, you have to think that picking up serpents with their hand and drinking deadly poison fits along with the others, okay? So things to think about. Um, so quick life application and then a few minutes of questions. So how do we know if we have the Holy Spirit? The first thing you ask yourself, is your belief correct? 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, 12 verse 13, remind, or 12 verse 3 reminds us that no one can say Jesus is Lord and actually mean it except by the Holy Spirit. So if you are saying in your life, Jesus is Lord, you can be assured that you have the Holy Spirit at work in you. The other question, you go to Galatians 6 and you say, here's the fruit of the Spirit. And you ask, is that fruit in my life? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? Is there evidence of those things? Are they organic fruits? Not like the the store-bought, put-on, painted dead fruit that you want to look really nice? Like, is it organic? Is it actually produced in your life? Not necessarily 
that you're like the most patient person, but that you're more patient, right, than you would be without uh, God in your life, right? Or more joyful, etc. So look for the, the evidences of the Holy Spirit. Another question, like how do we walk by the Holy Spirit, right? We're talk to, to, told to walk by the Holy Spirit, to be, to be led by the Spirit. Uh, and this is where a lot of the times people will say things that they've been led to do by the Holy Spirit. They're just like, I don't think that's actually true. Want to be careful again about attributing something in the wrong, the wrong source to it. But like, this was like the joke in Bible school that people would say, like, I was led to a relationship with you, right? <laughs> and then six months later, they're led away from the relationship <laughs> with them. And it's just like, like the Holy Spirit does not do that. <laughs> I am, I am, quite certain that's your flesh at work, right? That is actually the one leading you to and then leading you away. Um, when we think about the Holy Spirit and how he leads, we want to think God's word. We have, I think I wrote it down, 31,102 31, verses of scripture that we can go to that are the words of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit that are there to guide you. You can never complain for lack of guidance from the Holy Spirit unless you are illiterate and don't have access to an audio Bible, which you do, right? And so just recognize the, the Spirit of God leads through the Word of God, the words of God. And there will be times when there's things in your life that the Spirit will lead you to do that are not the words of God specific. So the Spirit of God will give you wisdom for certain situations uh, that as you're, as you're living, if you've walked with the Lord and walked with the Spirit, you kind of know this. You'll be in situations where you are convicted or you're compelled, I need to talk to that person. And you're like, there's no verse for it. There's, I, I don't have a verse that says I'm supposed to go talk to that person, but I've sensed the Holy Spirit's leading, so I'm going to go talk to the person and, and share the gospel with them, etc. right? You know, I see my neighbors as I'm driving in the driveway, and I'm like, this is actually, Good Friday's coming up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite my neighbors to Good Friday. Well, follow the Holy Spirit's leading, right? As he uh, opens the doors. If you keep saying no enough times to what the Holy Spirit's saying, probably eventually you're going to sear your conscience. You're going to, you're going to just, it's going to get quieter and you're not going to be able to pay as much attention. But if you're submitted to the Holy Spirit and the, the truth of God's word, that's going to become more natural. You're always going to you know, guard it by is it line up with what scripture says, right? Holy Spirit's not going to call you to do anything that's against scripture. That's not in line with it. And yet some of the, the times you'll find um, it's a sad thing if the people that are most spirit-led are the people that are most biblically illiterate. I don't think that's a good thing, right? That's that we would like look to people and say, oh, they look spirit-led but they're biblically illiterate. I don't think that's, we don't have that excuse in our day and age, right? We have God's word. So if you want to be led by the spirit, get in the word. We shouldn't be captivated so much. You know, there's a, a desire for like a new word from the Lord. I want like something fresh that's for me. And that's just, I think, a manifestation of our pride that we want something that God like spoke to me only, right? And I think that's just a little foolish of us. God has said, <laughs> to millions of believers, the same things he's saying to you, right? To, to be obedient, et cetera. And so uh, remember that. And so just for us as kind of closing to think about, recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit. We as believers don't want to be 
people that only really actually live like we believe in two members of the Godhead, God the Father and Jesus Christ, right? We want to actually understand and live out our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We want to recognize his divinity, his personhood. We want to recognize his empowering us to do ministry, the fact that he's the only reason that we have any fruit in our life, in our ministry, right? So attribute it to him. As we're doing ministry and we see fruit, it's like, man, the Holy Spirit's really working, right? Just because we talk about the Holy Spirit doesn't put us into a camp of uh, people that talk about the Holy Spirit and mean a whole lot of extra, extra stuff, right? So don't neglect the presence of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing. So, okay, there's like a few minutes for, <laughs> a couple minutes technically for Q&A. So Kelly, yeah. Um, two questions. That it's theoretical? That or? believers can actually do that. Well, believers can't actually blaspheme okay. the Holy Spirit. No. Okay. I don't believe believers could blaspheme the Holy Spirit because okay. believers couldn't actually call the work of the Holy Spirit okay. a work of Satan. Okay. Right? That being said, as a believer, um, so like on a whole, I don't, believe, I don't believe it's something a believer in Jesus Christ could do and be guilty of. Now maybe I'm catching myself in my words here. So I don't believe it's a believer could do that to call the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan in that regard. And so I would just caution believers not to do that. Just like I would caution, okay, so it says that murderers, thieves, liars will not inherit the kingdom. So I would advise Christians not to murder, lie, or be thieves, right? So I guess my, my advice would be don't, don't call things the work of Satan unless you are like crystal clear, absolutely <laughs> sure. So if that kind of explains it, but yeah. I think I was misunderstanding so, what you were saying. Yeah, I might not have been 100% clear either because I'm trying to understand it because I've always been taught it's just simply to deny the Holy Spirit right. to regenerate you. But when you look at the passage, that's not really what it's right. saying directly, right? It's very much more directly saying attributing the work of God to Satan. So, okay, what was your other question? <laughs> Um, with baptism with kids, again, another thing I was yeah, taught yeah. was the, I don't know, they call it the testing period, the proving period. Like, we don't want mm-hmm. kids to be baptized too young because we have to have a testing of the faith or mm-hmm. proving of the faith. So when I was growing up, we weren't baptized till we were well into our teens. So is there any, so it doesn't sound from what you're saying, there is no biblical basis for that. So I haven't seen it. Urge them to get baptized. Yeah, so, so here, let me theoretically okay. say, okay. Let's say you baptize somebody and they fall away from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Was it wrong to baptize them? No. 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 Uh, well, no. Like, it's, it's, no, it's no more... Like, I would not knowingly baptize somebody that's going to fall away from the Lord. But I've had people that are... Uh, not that I've baptized. I've only baptized a few people. But I've had people that I have seen be baptized that were well past the age of accountability or well past the testing period that have fallen away from the Lord. And so my thing would be, is that wrong to baptize them? No, like I'm baptizing based on the knowledge I have. Now, if your kid, you know your kid parrots and says things just to make you happy, then yes, I'm going to wait in terms of, I'm going to, is this actually what they think? Will they say this when I'm not around? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's healthy. If you don't encourage your kid to be baptized and they have, as best you can tell, made a genuine profession, you're actually hindering their faith. 
Right? The one I'm concerned about that I think I've forward been baptized, and the one yep. I think he's parroting what I want to hear, but I really am not convinced. So right. I'm kind of holding off, so that's probably the best course back. Yeah, as, yeah. Like, and maybe, maybe find context where you can kind of, I guess in that sense, test, try to like, right. you know, like ask a teacher to ask him about it in a context okay. or um, a youth leader or something like that, right? To try and think about it. But I do want to, yeah, and like obviously there's, you know, you got to take into consideration um, their, their abilities, right? To like to comprehend things. Okay, my son Ari is five years old. He will say the right things right. if I ask him the right questions, but it's not. Like I, he hasn't, he hasn't come up to me and been like crying, being like, I'm, I'm a sinner. Like I could actually be separated from God apart from Jesus Christ. Right. So I know in my, in my head, I'm like, he's not there, even though we can say the right things. But yeah, I, it's funny that we like, haven't heard as much of the, like you could actually damage your child's or right, be holding your child back because you're like not encouraging them to take the first step. Right. So, okay. Other questions real quick before we go. You got one? Okay, one question for you, and then we'll have more after once everybody's dismissed. Um, I noticed that some churches, the Pentecostal churches, they're wild. You know, some of them that are really crazy and wild, they're falling all over the place and all this and that. Holy Spirit there? <laughs> What's that mean there? Are we going to call that the Holy Spirit? Are we going to call that a So I don't know if I would go as far as to say it's of Satan, but I would look at scripture and I'd say, hmm, I don't actually see that being the way the Holy Spirit manifests himself in scripture. And so, you know as well as I do, that like emotionally people can do a lot. Like, I have been in situations where it's not the Holy Spirit working and I feel like a warm sensation, right? Where I'm listening to a very secular band sing a very moving song about like an emotional thing. And it's like, it's not the Holy Spirit working. And so you got to discern that just because you have like an emotional feeling or reaction is not the Holy Spirit, right? So we, I don't, I don't pretend to understand it. I don't pretend to, I'm not going to be the one calling and saying, looking at that video and saying, that's not the Holy Spirit. That is, that isn't. But I would say as a general practice, look at the, the fruit of the ministry. First of all, are people actually growing in their sanctification? Are they growing in their walk with the Lord? And then look at, like, does it actually just square with what the Bible teaches? So tongues is a great example, right? If people are going to use tongues and believe that tongues is active and a a gift that God has given for us today, then at least, at the very least, it should match up with the pattern of Scripture. So it should be actual human languages. There should be an interpreter, etc., right? Um, So our position here at Harvest is we're not a cessationist church per se, and we're not a charismatic church, right? We're kind of a non-charismatic church. So we don't encourage people. Uh, We think that when you look at the, speaking of tongues specifically, you look at the current movement of tongues, and it just gives way too much undue um, prominence to that gift. Different staff, maybe a different, uh, or a different uh, staff and elders, maybe a little bit different uh, statuses on this to the degree, but it's kind of like, I would say the majority of them are probably more convinced that that was during the apostolic age when scripture was being completed. It was signs and wonders accompanied the apostles and more or less passed away. 
It's not the norm for the church today. We don't want to put a limit on God and say God can't use that. We're not saying that. We don't say that people to be ministry partners here have to agree on that. They just have to not cause disunity about it. We don't want to create spectacles or create divisiveness about that. Um, again, recognizing, okay, if, if you are going to, if you feel convicted about that and you feel that's actual, then it's got to line up with the pattern of scripture for that. So I guess to answer your question in a long way, a lot of what I have seen, and I don't know what, what you've seen, but a lot of like the Benny Hinn thing, I'm not convinced that's the Holy Spirit. I'm not convinced that's the Holy Spirit based on uh, the fruit of the ministry, based on the, uh, the alignment with Scripture. But am I prepared to call that a work of Satan? I'm just going to be cautious on that one. I hope that answers your question. But Yeah, because through in Puerto, Rican, in Puerto Rico, the Spanish churches and stuff I noticed... Yeah. That, that so at the, like at the end of the day, I'm not going to say what God can and cannot do. I had a friend from India about four years ago who was here as an international student that told me in all sincerity that he went into a remote tribe of India as a mission with a missions trip and that he says by God, the Holy Spirit, he actually spoke in their language and they understood it. And he was like, what is going on? And I'm like, hey. I, I can't deny that he had that experience. Like I, I try to align it with scripture and understand. It, and as he explains it, I say, if they actually understood it and heard it in your language, like that sounds to me what like acts two, like that sounds like what's happening. Can God do that? God can do miracles. Absolutely. We believe God can do miracles. So, but does that mean that every church that's doing tongues here, tongues here is doing that biblically? I don't, I don't think that's, accurate to say either, right? So, um, so I guess I, I'm an open, an openist. I don't know if there's a word to that, right? But like open to the Holy Spirit working in miraculous ways, but to, to think, uh, seeing the pattern of what we have in terms of divine healers speaking in tongues, like the way it's manifested, I, I just don't think that looks like what it should. God can heal. God can still allow people to communicate. I wish he would do that for, for uh, Wycliffe translators, right? They're going and trying to write scripture in other people's languages, and they have to spend years and years and years trying to get the language. And I think there's something that God's doing through that that's humbling and valuable as well. But I would, I would love it. Man, I would love it if you know, I could go to the university and speak in Hindi or Arabic. Like, that would just be so amazing, right? We were actually speaking just a moment ago about, at the beginning of the class, about how in the, in the deaf ministry, people will listen to any spiritual authority that can speak deaf because there's so few spiritual teachers, so, so few biblical teachers that actually can do sign language and speak to the deaf that they just go to who's available, right? So that just to me communicates, okay, we need to be really like, yes, sure. Pray for the gift of tongues that you can just miraculously do the sign language thing tomorrow. That'd be amazing. But also let's just discipline ourselves to become skilled communicators in other languages so that other people can hear the gospel clearly, right? So, okay, I'm going to end it there just for the sake of time. And then if you have more questions, feel free to ask them or email them. Thank you so much for sticking it out for six weeks. You guys have been very faithful and very, uh, studious students so hopefully it's been helpful for you and uh
Let me just close in a prayer to commit our time and our learning to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the time we have had. Thank you for these six weeks and uh, just how much I've learned and we've been able to learn together about who you are, um, how to interact with you through the Holy Spirit, how to engage uh, or to at least understand the angelic realm, the demonic realm. Lord, we pray that we would be um, just very active and aware uh, in our walk with you, that we'd be aware of the spiritual realm of what is true and that we would be able to uh, live according to your scripture in our interaction with the spiritual realm. We pray for the rest of our night as well. Keep us safe as we head home and help us to apply uh, what we've put into uh, our heads in terms of knowledge in these past six weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.